Amen. Well, if you were here for the last semester, last semester we spent most of our time talking about, uh, we talked about doctrine of sin, and then we began to kind of get into the doctrine of soteriology, which is what? The study of? Salvation, all right? Soteros, uh, soteria, uh, is, soteria is the, uh, the Greek word for salvation. And, uh, and so we began talking about uh, the doctrine of salvation, in particular, what Christ has accomplished. And then what we're talking about this semester is how what Christ has accomplished is applied uh, to us. So kind of the application of uh, redemption. And one of the things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks in particular uh, is kind of this set of doctrine that's uh, typically called kind of the doctrine of grace. You might sometimes hear it called uh, Calvinism. Now, we say all the time, we don't care that you consider yourself a Calvinist. We, consider, uh, we hope that you consider yourself a Biblicist. It just so happens that we think Calvin actually got some things right about the Bible. By the way, he also got some things really wrong about the Bible. Uh, infant baptism, uh, for example. But, uh, but that's kind of what we've been talking about is, uh, is these sort of doctrines of grace. And so today we're going to talk about irresistible grace, which is one of these uh, doctrines of grace, sometimes called uh, Calvinism again. I wanted to start with this quote. It's from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. You have it in your uh, notes there. This is kind of the sort of premier confession of the Reformed Church, of Calvinistic uh, churches. And, uh, and so this is on the topic of irresistible grace. Uh, it says, all those whom God hath predestinated unto life, sorry for the kind of old English there, and those only he has pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call, that's what we're talking about today, that phrase, effectually to call, by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. By the way, we talk about that in the sermon today. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. There's that same sort of idea, effectually calling, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. If you grasp that one paragraph, you kind of get the entire uh, doctrine of irresistible grace. So let me give you a few different definitions, and then we're going to spend our time just kind of talking about 12 different things that you need to know about irresistible grace. First, a couple of definitions. The first one from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is based off the Westminster Confession of Faith. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is effectual calling? As we'll see, that's the same sort of idea as irresistible grace. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You could also look at uh, how Bruce Ware describes it in a book called Still Sovereign, which, by the way, is a, a collection of essays that are really helpful. If you're wrestling through the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation and these sorts of things, this is a really helpful book. And, uh, and he says, the work of God, that uh, irresistible grace is the work of God by which he opens the blind eyes and enlivens the hardened hearts of those dead in Sin. So those are just some working definitions of what we'll be talking about today, and we'll spend our time just kind of clarifying what irresistible grace is, what effectual calling is. And so 12 things you need to know 
about irresistible grace. First thing, irresistible grace is the I in tulip. So you'll often hear uh, Calvinism described as tulip. Those are the five points of Calvinism. T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We talked about total depravity last semester. We've talked a little bit uh, about uh, unconditional election and limited atonement this semester. We'll talk about perseverance of the saints in a future uh, semester. But uh, these are the five points of Calvinism. And so irresistible grace, the I there, is the I in TULIP. So I want to talk a little bit about how we got this, these particular five points that are known as the five points of Calvinism, just to give you a little bit of a view of historical theology. Where, where did these sorts of ideas uh, come out of? And so uh, John Calvin was a, uh, a pastor and professor in, uh, in Geneva. Uh, if you are pretentious, you call it Geneva, as I often do. And, uh, and so he died in 1564. He died in 1564, and uh, four years before his death, so 1560 or so, uh, Jacob Arminius, a guy named uh, Arminius, was born. And he studied under Calvin's successor, Theodore uh, Beza. And, uh, and then after he studied under Calvin's successor, he then went to uh, minister to pastor in, uh, in the Netherlands. And his influence spread throughout the Netherlands, throughout uh, the nation of Holland. And, uh, and there was then this reaction to uh, Calvinistic ideas that was kind of birthed out of Arminius' teaching. And they called themselves the uh, remonstrance or the remonstrance, or I don't know how to pronounce it. But uh, the basic idea was that they were a uh, protest. They were a protest, protest against the ideas of Calvin, against the ideas of Reformed theology. Not merely Calvin, but all of the kind of the stream of Reformed theology coming out of the, uh, the Reformation. And so uh, Arminius is kind of a leading figure in this remonstrance, this protest against uh, Calvinism. And so they formed this little anti-Calvin club. And, uh, and as a response to Calvinism, they drafted five articles. By the way, that's where you get five points of Calvinism. They're actually the response of the Calvinists to these five articles that were originally kind of expounded by the remonstrance, by the, uh, the anti-Calvinistic uh, club uh, that was uh, formed there. And so um, the, uh, the Calvinists then responded in 1618 uh, through 1619 with what's called the Synod of Dort. And in the Synod of Dort, they responded to the remonstrance, to the uh, critiques that the Arminians had given against the Calvinists. And, uh, and in their response, they responded to the five articles that the uh, Arminians had put forth. And, uh, and those then became known as the five points of Calvinism. By the way, that acronym, TULIP, doesn't actually come up uh, originally in, uh, in the 16th century or even the 17th century or even the 18th century or even the 19th century. The first time that we actually have uh, reference to this uh, idea of the five points of Calvinism as being this acronym TULIP is actually in the early 20th century. There's not a uh, recorded usage uh, until around uh, 1905 or something uh, like that. No one is really certain, absolutely certain, who came up with it originally. But it's super clever uh, because TULIP 
is, uh, is the acronym, and anyone who has ever been to Amsterdam, if you've ever flown to the Amsterdam airport, you know that tulips are everywhere. In fact, it's the national flower of the Netherlands, and so it's really clever that they came up with this, although I like the, uh, there's a modern version uh, of this, and uh, instead of the five points of Calvinism, they have the five points of, uh, of Calvinism known as not tulip, but bacon. This is, uh, this is my favorite. You might have seen this online, but it's bad people. That's the idea of total depravity. Bad people already elected, completely atoned for, overwhelmingly called, never falling away. That's bacon. And uh, so the first point that you need to know, irresistible grace is the I in tulip. And that's a little background of where we got uh, tulip from. Again, it wasn't something that the Calvinists just said, these are the five things we want to be known for. It was the Arminians protested against these five points in particular, and, uh, and so the Calvinists then responded uh, with that. And then uh, 300, 400 years later, uh, someone came up with that uh, acronym. Second thing you need to know, that the phrase irresistible grace is ripe for misunderstanding. The phrase irresistible grace is ripe for misunderstanding. A.A. A. Hodge says this, it is to be lamented that the term irresistible grace has ever been used since it suggests the idea of a mechanical and coercive influence upon an unwilling subject, while in truth it is the transcendent act of an infinite creator making the creature spontaneously willing. D.A. Carson uh, says, the expression irresistible grace is misleading because it suggests what the theologians themselves usually seek to avoid. In other words, the idea that the inevitability of the coming to Jesus by those given to Jesus means that they do so against their will, squealing and kicking as it were. And then Wayne Grudem says this, it refers to the fact that God effectively calls people and also gives them regeneration, and both actions guarantee that they will respond in saving faith. The term irresistible grace is subject to misunderstanding, however, since it seems to imply that people do not make a voluntary, willing choice in responding to the gospel. A wrong idea and a wrong understanding of the term irresistible grace. The term does preserve something valuable, however, because it indicates that God's work reaches into our hearts to bring about a response that is absolutely certain, even though we respond voluntarily. So as we talked about with total depravity, that isn't the idea that you are as bad as you possibly could be. Everyone in this room could be worse than they ever were. All right, everyone in this room, uh, even if you were at some point a, uh, a serial killer, instead of killing 10 people, you could have killed 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. And then you could have added all these other sins to, so, so the idea of total depravity is not that you were bad as you possibly could be. Likewise, the term irresistible grace can be misunderstood and, uh, and uh, misapplied. And so that's why the third point is that irresistible grace is also known as effectual calling or efficacious grace or overcoming grace. All of these sorts of uh, ideas are kind of trying to deal with the fact that this can be misunderstood. And, uh, and so we'll see that as we get into the fourth and fifth points. One of the reasons that irresistible grace as a term is kind of ripe for misunderstanding is this fourth point here, that certain texts teach that God's will can be resisted. Certain texts teach that. Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So the Bible says that you can resist the Holy Spirit, so how can we call this irresistible grace? Or Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we can resist, we can grieve, 
C, do not quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So we can resist, we can quench, we can grieve. Romans 10.21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Matthew 23.37, Jesus is speaking, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. So certain texts uh, certainly teach that God's will can be resisted. But number five, certain texts also teach that God's will cannot be resisted. Romans 9.19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? will? The, uh, the answer to the rhetorical question is none. That's Paul's uh, expectation and hope is that you would see the answer to that question is no one can resist his will in the sense that Paul means in Romans 9 as we will preach in a few weeks. Or Daniel 4, 34 through 35, at the end of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deep. So everything the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever the Lord uh, pleases, he does. And, uh, and so you have certain texts that teach that God's will can be resisted. And then you have certain texts that teach God's will cannot be resisted. And that might seem on the surface to be a contradiction. And so that's why we have the uh, sixth point there, which kind of explains how that is not in any sense a contradiction. Irresistible grace doesn't mean that God's common grace cannot be resisted. That's what uh, it's talking about in point four there. God's common grace can be resisted, but rather that his saving grace can overcome any resistance. Irresistible, irresistible grace doesn't mean that God's common grace cannot be resisted, but rather that his saving grace can overcome any resistance. This doesn't mean that you can't resist God's grace. You absolutely can resist God's grace. But you need to understand that God can ultimately overcome your resistance. You can resist up to the point where God decides you will resist no longer. Imagine me arm wrestling Taylor Brower, right? He can resist for a short period of time, but at any point I can rip his arm off and beat him with it, right? That's kind of the idea there. You can resist, but at any point, God can overcome your resistance. Bruce Ware says this, when Calvinists reserve, refer to irresistible grace, they mean to say that the Holy Spirit is able, when he so chooses, to overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. So certain texts do teach that uh, you can resist God's will, other texts teach that uh, God's will cannot be resisted. Those aren't in any sense a contradiction because what irresistible grace is simply saying is that God can overcome any resistance that God desires to overcome. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Next point. Irresistible grace is not the same as prevenient grace. That might be a new phrase for you. We'll talk about that 
Irresistible grace is not the same as prevenient grace. Throughout church history, there have kind of been uh, three different kind of views on uh, the role of grace within the work of uh, salvation. Uh, The first one being Pelagianism. There you go. All right. So Pelagianism uh, out of this guy named uh, Pelagius, and, uh, and he taught basically the idea that you don't need grace. You don't need grace to respond to God. Just kind of do what is in you. Kind of this idea that you're born a blank slate, and, uh, and so you can incline towards good, you can incline towards evil. Sin is not something that uh, you inherit, it's something that's simply environmental. It's something you, you kind of see your parents, and so your parents are sinners, and so you imitate them. And uh, it's not something that you're actually born with, it's something that you kind of learn. And uh, so that's kind of the Pelagian view, that you don't need grace to obey. Now, contrast to that, so that's a non-biblical, that's a non-Christian perspective that, uh, uh, according to uh, uh, church councils, has been uh, declared an actual heresy. And, uh, and so that is uh, totally outside the bounds of orthodox theology. But within what's generally considered uh, to be general uh, or genuine Christianity, you have Calvinists and Arminians, and they kind of disagree on the role of grace or the uh, meaning of grace. What grace is and uh, what grace does is different from a Calvinistic perspective and an Arminian uh, perspective. And so Calvinists believe in this sort of idea that we're talking about today, irresistible grace, uh, God's effectual calling, those sorts of things, efficacious grace, um, while Arminians teach this idea that's called prevenient grace there. I think you have it in your uh, notes for the spelling and all that kind of thing. So what is prevenient grace? What differs from Pelagianism, Arminians would absolutely say that absolutely everybody needs grace to choose Christ. Pelagians, uh, I'm sorry, Arminians would say that everybody has been affected by the fall. They would agree in total depravity, and they would say, everybody, you need, if you're going to respond to God's offer of salvation, you need grace. But here's what's distinct about the Arminian view of the grace that God provides. Uh, For them, it is a grace that God provides universally. He gives everybody that grace. That's prevenient grace. He gives grace to everybody so that they might uh, respond uh, to uh, the gospel. And so what does this grace do? Well, it overcomes, in the Arminian uh, viewpoint, it overcomes the effect of the fall on man's will and kind of restores free will such that man is able to choose good or evil. That's what prevenient grace does uh, in, uh, in their viewpoint. It kind of, uh, God kind of basically just pours out his grace on all mankind, uh, just kind of universally he gives everybody this grace, and that grace overcomes uh, the, some of the effects of total depravity such that they are able to freely choose whether they want to love Jesus or not. And so a quote on that. Arminians maintain that prevenient grace, a benefit that flows from Christ's death on the cross, neutralizes human depravity and restores to pre-Christians everywhere the ability to heed God's general call to salvation. So this is the idea of prevenient grace. Well, there's a number of problems uh, that theologians have uh, found with the idea of prevenient grace as the Arminians teach it. First, it's not really found in Scripture. 
That's a huge problem. This is a big cog. In order to overcome the effects of total depravity, to get from you are totally depraved to get to you are saved, something has to be done about this total depravity. And that is a huge kind of cog in, uh, in the wheel of salvation, if you will. And so for it not to have any sort of biblical evidence is, uh, is a huge issue. And so Arminians would point to various texts, which they would say seem to imply it, although their interpretation of the text really stretches, if not really breaks, the authorial meaning of those texts. So that's the first problem with this idea. Is it's not really found in Scripture. The second one... It's tied to a deficient view of God's foreknowledge. This is one of those things where I think uh, people keep using that word, but they don't actually know what the word uh, means. We'll talk about this in uh, the sermon today where it talks about those whom God foreknows, he predestines. And uh, and so foreknowledge, uh, what uh, Arminians think is that God simply knows the future. God knows those who will freely choose him. And he knows those who will not freely choose him. And, uh, and so prevenient grace is kind of built on the idea that, uh, that God just simply knows the future. And as we'll talk about in the sermon, that's not what foreknowledge means. Does God know the future? Yes. But is that what the word foreknowledge means in the New Testament? No, that is not uh, what it uh, means. And so we'll talk about that uh, a little bit uh, more. So that's the second problem. It's, it's kind of tied, tethered to this deficient view of God's foreknowledge. The third one, that it assumes that fallen men are able to believe, which is explicitly denied in Scripture, as we've seen in the, the, our talk on depravity. It renders passages like Romans 3, Romans 3, which says that no one seeks for God, rather impotent, as the meaning would just be that no one seeks for God on their own, but God has given everyone the power to do so. That would kind of render, kind of dilute the meaning, the power uh, of that uh, kind of condemnation, the critique against mankind. If God has just given everybody the, fr- uh, the freedom and the ability and the, uh, the opportunity to overcome their total depravity, then that passage doesn't have nearly the power uh, that it does in its original context. Uh, next, uh, another problem with this is that it gives man something in which to boast Let's say, for example, I use my free will, so God gives me free will, he gives Zach free will, we're both unbelievers, and let's say uh, that uh, God gives us both this prevenient grace, overcomes the effect of the fall, and I use mine in a virtuous way. I decide uh, that I want to respond to God's prevenient grace by uh, giving my life to Jesus, by believing the gospel. Zach responds, he decides, you know what, I don't want to do that. Well, then I have something to boast about over Zach, right? I've done something virtuous. I've done something good. But throughout the scripture, you'll see the way that God has manufactured salvation is in such a way that you have nothing in which to boast. Not 10%, not 5%, not 2%, not 1%, not 0.000001%. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So that's another problem with this view of prevenient grace is because it, it gives man something to boast. Yes, God is gracious to give everybody a chance, but some people use that chance well. It gives them something to boast about. Next, it makes the work of God dependent on the will of man, that God's will is secondary and submissive to man's will, that ultimately uh, the, the, uh, the final sort of uh, criteria for whether or not you are saved is not God's will, but your will. That's another problem with it. And then lastly, 
it makes some of God's grace wasted. He intends to do something that isn't accomplished. He gives grace to all, in an Arminian view, according to prevenient grace. He gives grace to all in the hopes that all might come, but that grace doesn't actually accomplish what he desires and designed for it to do for the majority of its recipients. And uh, so here's the difference between the Arminian view of prevenient grace and the Calvinist view of irresistible grace. In one, kind of to use this illustration, in one, God stands on a boat, he tosses a life preserver to a drowning person, and he says, here, take this. And he gives that life preserver to everybody. Everybody's drowning, and God gives a life preserver. He's got one life preserver for every single person on earth. And so he tosses a life preserver to every single person. He says, here, and take this. That's the Arminian view of prevenient grace. The Calvinist view of irresistible grace is that God jumps into the water and he drags out, not drowning people, but people who are already dead, people who are already drowned, and he brings them back on the boat and he resuscitates them. That's the difference between prevenient grace and irresistible grace. So irresistible grace is not the same as uh, prevenient grace. Next, eighth point. Irresistible grace is manifest in uh, regeneration. That's just a fancy word that means to be born again. We'll talk about uh, that in particular uh, next week. That will be our entire topic is uh, regeneration, so I won't spend as much time on it uh, today. But irresistible grace is what causes one to be born again so that those who are born again, they're given a new heart, a new desire. Uh, they, uh, they have this desire to believe, to repent, to choose Christ, to accept the gospel, to receive Christ, and on and on you could go with different ways of phrasing, uh, phrasing it. And so think about, for, 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 for instance, um, what is probably the most famous biblical passage in all the world? John 3.16, right? Tim Tebow has it uh, back in the day. He had it uh, on his eye black. What's that stuff called? Whatever that stuff is called. So John 3.16, somebody quote that for me. Yeah, I heard some words. That's right. (laughs) God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, all right? And so everybody loves that passage, right? Raise your hand if you love that passage. Raise your hand if you hate that passage. That's a, that's a test. Okay. All right. Here's the problem, though, about how most people view that passage. They f- don't read it within its greater context. Uh, look at John 3.20. I think this is in your notes or if you have a Bible and you want to look at it. And, uh, and so uh, let's consider together the context of this passage. John 3.20. So John 3.16, we've already said, everyone, if you believe, you will be saved. All right? But the problem is verse 20, John 3, 20, for everyone who does wicked things, raise your hand if that is you at any point in your life, if you would uh, be described as someone who did wicked things, all right? Everyone's hand should be up. Some of you just didn't raise your hand, but everyone is wicked. So everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. You are supposed to see in here a universality to John 3.20. You're supposed to see yourself in John 3.20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So everyone's wicked and thus everyone hates the light and thus no one will come to the light. As Romans 3 said, no one seeks for God. Yet we do know that some do come, right? Those who are believers, they do come to the light. So how does that happen? John 3.21 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now listen to this next phrase. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. How do you come? Because of God. Your works, your works even of coming to the light have been carried out in God. God is the one who has actually done the work of bringing you to himself. Consider the context of this entire passage. Anyone know who Jesus is talking to in John 3? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, that's correct. And so in John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus, and Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, is, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So no one comes to the light. Those who come to the light only do so to manifest that their works have been carried out in God. What is the work that God does so that they might come to the light? Regeneration. That they are born again. They're born of the water and uh, the spirit. By the way, that's not, a bab- uh, that's not a reference to baptism. We know that because uh, Jesus' response whenever uh, Nicodemus doesn't understand is, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, he says, there's something in the Old Testament that you should get to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about regeneration, which is the, the ninth point here, that irresistible grace is part of the promise of the new covenant. Irresistible grace is the part of the promise of the new covenant. So we talked about this as we talked about the different covenants, the, uh, the uh, Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, in particular the Mosaic uh, covenant. Uh, as we talked about the uh, old covenant, we talked about there are, is an, an inherent problem with the old covenant. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, and those great wonders. Here's the problem. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But there is a promise. So there's this problem with the old covenant, that is, God has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears uh, to hear. But there's a promise in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that the Lord will one day circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, that you may live. I won't read all of these passages, but Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, all are talking about the same sort of idea, that you will be sprinkled with the water and with the Spirit. So when Jesus is talking in John 3 and he says you must be born of the water and the Spirit, he's not talking about baptism and he's not talking about spirit baptism like in a charismatic sort of sense. What he's talking about is the old covenant. You are going to have to be, uh, you're going to have to be a recipient of this promise of the new covenant that is uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. So you see all of these passages uh, here that are talking about that, to walk in God's statutes and rules, including his command that we might believe, that we might receive the gospel, that we might submit our lives, that we might repent, all of these sorts of things, that we might have faith in Jesus. To do anything that God requires, it requires new hearts and new minds. We read about that a couple of weeks ago, Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. 
And uh, so irresistible grace is part of the promise of the new covenant, that God would take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That is what irresistible grace does. It overcomes your heart of stone by giving you a heart of flesh. And what does that heart of flesh then do when it sees Jesus? It comes. It loves. It chooses. It believes. It repents. All of these sorts of things. So that's the ninth point. Tenth thing you need to know is that irresistible grace is to be distinguished from what's called the external or general call of the gospel. So we talked about uh, irresistible grace. There's a couple of uh, synonyms for it. What are some of the other terms that we should use because irresistible grace can be misleading? Anybody remember? Effectual calling, efficacious grace, all of these sorts of things. So one of the things that you should recognize, there is a difference in the Bible between what's called the effectual call of God and the external call of God. And every one of us is probably familiar with that. And uh, so raise your hand if you ever heard the gospel before you actually heard the gospel. All right? A lot of us, all right? Probably every one of us, if we really sat down and kind of uh, reviewed our lives and that kind of stuff, very few of us uh, believe the gospel the very first time that we ever heard it with our actual uh, ears. And, uh, and so what matters is not just that you hear it with your ears, but that you actually hear it with your heart. I heard the gospel a hundred times before I actually believed it because I didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about this sort of idea. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this, uh, this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. By the way, that is the default condition of mankind. You are born in a state of spiritual blindness For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, as your servants, for Jesus' sake. If you want to know how that blindness is overcome, that's in this next phrase. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so notice this creation imagery, this allusion to creation. Let light shine out of darkness. Where does God first say that? In Genesis 1. That's what's happening there. And so it's relating what happens in Genesis 1 where there is nothing. The, the world is dark and devoid of form. It's empty. It's chaotic. And God simply speaks something into existence. And Paul has just said the exact same thing happens in your heart. That your heart is dark. Your heart is depraved. Your, your heart is deformed. And God simply speaks something into existence, uh, into uh, your heart. Or Romans 8, 29 through 30. We'll talk about that uh, later today. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. By the way, that's our sermon today. Notice in the passage that all who are called are justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. So either all are justified or only some are called. That's the only logical conclusion on that passage. Either all are justified or only some are called in this Romans 8 sense of calling. So that call has to affect what it intends to affect. That's why we call it the effectual uh, call. The external call takes no real uh, miracle. 
It takes no real miracle of God's grace. Simply for me to stand up and to preach the gospel, for you to hear that, all it takes on your part is just simply the ability to hear, right? But for the ability to actually hear with your heart, to have eyes to see and ears to hear in a spiritual sense, that takes a work of God's grace. So imagine that I, if you ever, been, if you ever go to my neighborhood, uh, you'll note at the end of the street there is a, uh, uh, a cemetery. And, uh, and so imagine I go down there to that cemetery, uh, to that graveyard, and I just stand there amongst the tombs and I just preach my heart out. Preach the gospel, all right? I just do the work of an evangelist right there. Nothing is going to happen, right? Absolutely nothing is going to happen with me doing that. But what happens when Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb and he says, come forth? Something happens. That's the difference between the external call and the effectual call. What I'm doing when I'm preaching the gospel is just an external call. That's all I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for just giving you the information. What God is responsible for is the effectual call and actually giving you a heart that is able to receive it, a heart that is able uh, to believe it. So that's the external call versus the eff- uh, efficacious or effectual call uh, or of the gospel. The external call, the general call of the gospel, has gone out over the entire world. That's what we're responsible for. Again, we have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to do this external call. You have a responsibility to share the gospel with your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, your uh, strangers, all of these sorts of things. You have responsibility and opportunity to do that. That's just the external call of the gospel. You don't have any control whatsoever over the uh, effectual call of the gospel. That is entirely of, uh, of God's grace. So the irresistible grace or the effectual call is to be distinguished from the external call. Does that make sense, the distinction between the two, hopefully? Eleventh, uh, second to last, irresistible grace means that God's sovereignty extends to the will of man. We've talked about this before. It's this idea called compatibilism, that God's sovereignty doesn't contradict man's responsibility. It's not the idea that either God is fully sovereign or man is responsible for uh, our sins. No, both of those things are simultaneously true. Those things are compatible. That's why it's called compatibilism, that man's responsibility is compatible with God's sovereignty, that God can ordain something that I truly, freely, willingly choose. Those are not contradictions or incompatible. Uh, for kind of the Arminian view of, uh, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, it kind of has to be one or the other. But here's a number of passages, I won't read all of them, but a number of passages that talk about uh, how God's sovereignty can extend even to the will of man. Second Samuel 24.1, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, that's God, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. By the way, uh, if you're reading in First Chronicles, the exact same account, it says that Satan uh, incited David. So did Satan incite David or did God incite David? Well, both and. And then uh, you'll see that uh, David is judged for this. He's judged for uh, having a census of the people. And uh, so he's given a choice of whether he wants a pestilence, plague, or whatever uh, it might be. And, uh, and so you can see how simultaneously God can sovereignly ordain something and yet man can be held responsible uh, for it. Genesis 20, 4 through 6, you have the story of uh, Abraham and Abimelech. 
And, uh, and so Abimelech has taken Sarah into his harem, uh, if you will, and uh, he has a dream uh, in the night. And, uh, and so in that dream, uh, the Lord says that, uh, that, Abraham is, uh, or that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And, uh, and so Abimelech says, yep, I didn't touch her. And God says, I know. It was I who kept you. God can keep people from sinning. So the idea of kind of this free will sort of idea where God kind of stands and takes his hands off the wheel and just says, you do whatever you do and I'll do what I do is, uh, is not a biblical idea. 1 Samuel 2.25, um, the sons of Eli would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The reason they wouldn't listen and the reason they're responsible for not listening, but the reason they wouldn't listen is because it's the will of the Lord to put them to death. You have the example of the hardening of Pharaoh. A number of passages say Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but framing those, the very first thing and the very last thing, kind of bookends in between Pharaoh hardening his own heart, you have God say, I will uh, harden Pharaoh's heart at the front end, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart at the back end. So does God harden Pharaoh's heart, or does uh, Pharaoh harden his own heart? The answer is yes. Both and. These things are compatible. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever uh, he will. We could go on and on, but for the sake of time, uh, just uh, can read these other sort of passages. But the idea there is uh, that God's sovereignty can extend even to the will of man. It overcomes, again, our resistance. That every one of us is, uh, is naturally, uh, is born into this state, uh, the state in which we are unwilling to respond to the gospel. We do respond to the gospel. We respond to the gospel with hatred. We respond to the gospel with indifference, with apathy, with antagonism, with all of these sorts of things. We are uh, unable to respond to the gospel appropriately with reverence and submission and faith and love and these sorts of things. And so God must overcome that unwillingness on our, uh, on our part. His sovereignty extends even to our wills. And the last thing is that even if irresistible grace were not explicitly taught, uh, and it is, it's still logically necessary in light of the devastating depiction of man's depravity. So just want to go back to this idea again and again because you won't understand, in a sense, Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, reformed theology, however you want to describe it, all of these things stand or fall on your view of God's sovereignty and your view of man's depravity. If, as long as you think that there is some bit of good in you that can incline toward God's goodness, you will not grasp this doctrine. So I want to go back to this sort of idea and just ask that, how does a blind man see? And the Bible says we're all blind. Every single one of us spiritually blind. How does a deaf man hear the gospel? Every one of us is spiritually deaf. How does someone who hates God, as all of us do according to John 3, how does that person love him? How does a person with a darkened mind reason correctly or a darkened heart love correctly? How does a dead person live? That's sort of the idea there. Benjamin Warfield said, said this. I think this is really helpful. Sinful man stands in need, not of inducements or assistance to save himself, but pre precisely of saving. And Jesus Christ has not come to advise or urge or woo or help him to save himself, but to save him. Mankind doesn't merely need God to throw a life preserver and tell us to grab on to tell us that we're drowning. We need him to dive into the sea, 
the raging waters and dry, uh, drag our lifeless bodies from it. We've talked about this quote before, but I think it's really good by Charles Spurgeon. He said, one week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. And the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I want to end just by looking really quickly at John 6. I think this is one of the places where we see uh, this the uh, kind of outlined the clearest for us. And uh, so Bruce Ware asked this question. I think it's in that still sovereign book that I recommended earlier. He said, how is it that some, having seen the sign or revelation given by God, choose to believe in Christ and so gain eternal life while others presented with the same sign continue in their disbelief, challenging Christ's claims and resisting the truth made known to them? So I want to start with John 6.44. You should have this in your notes. John 6.44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that's a powerful critique against Pelagianism, right? Pelagius would say, you can come even if God doesn't draw you. All right? So you have that it's a powerful critique against, uh, against Pelagius. What would be the, uh, the Arminian response, though? He's drawn everyone, right? Uh, through what kind of grace? Provenient grace, right? So this sounds great. That's a great idea. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But he's kind of drawn everyone. And that might be the way that you read uh, this passage. And then you get to, if you're working backwards in the text, John six thirty-seven: All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now we have a problem. All that the Father gives will come. Same context within a few verses. Seems as though God giving and God drawing are related. And if all that are given will come, then either all come or only some come, which means that only some are given, which means that only some are drawn. Does that make sense? Kind of what we did there? Add to that, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So everyone that God gives, uh, God the Father gives to the Son, the Son will not lose, and he will raise them up on the last day. He will resurrect them. Same idea as before. Jesus will lose none that are given. All who are given will come and will be kept and resurrected. So either this is true of all people or only some are given and drawn. But all of that, we just did a little bit of logic on these passages. All of that is somewhat beating around the bush if we would have just kept reading John 6, 44 through 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So coming to God is related to God drawing and them hearing and learning from God. And everyone 
who has heard and learned will come. So either everyone comes or only some hear and learn. So the conclusion from this that uh, I think is a really powerful, probably the most powerful passage to just teach this idea of effectual calling or irresistible grace. In verses 37 and 39, we see that all those given by the Father will come to Jesus. In verses 44 and 65, we see that only those given by the Father come to Jesus. So therefore, the drawing of the Father is effectual. In other words, it it affects everyone that he intends. It's effectual. All that the Father gives will come, and it's also selective. Only those who are given will come. So all and only, it's effectual and also selective. As uh, Jesus would say in John 10, 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. What matters first and foremost is being a sheep. The response of that is uh, belief. So four arguments for irresistible grace, and then I'll have... Zach, come up. Argument one, not only salvation, but faith and repentance themselves are gifts of God. Argument two, we cannot and will not come to Christ unless God draws us. Argument three, God's effectual calling overcomes resistance to the gospel by giving us a new heart, new affections, new wills. Argument four, the new birth enables us to repent, believe, and receive Christ, whereas our old nature is unwilling and unable to repent and believe. Our new nature in regeneration is able and willing that's irresistible grace. Zachary, you want to come up? We'll do some Q&A.